We didn't get in. I may be the only person who's met the Pope wearing a pair of jeans. Oh, we should have done that. How did I miss that? What an opportunity. Wait, that could be the headline. The only person who's met the Pope in unwashed jeans. <laughs> <laughs> Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Leadership Next. I'm Alan Murray, here with Ellen McGirt. And that was Chip Berg, the CEO of Levi Strauss, talking about the Pope and fashion. You know, two topics we regularly cover here on Leadership Next. Alan, I believe you should set the scene for that one. Yeah, well, he was talking about an event we did back in 2016, December, where we took 100 CEOs of large companies, including Chip, the CEO of Levi Strauss, to the Vatican. It was an amazing event and I think really a seminal event in this development of stakeholder capitalism right. because we didn't invite any government officials and those CEOs sat around and talked about what can the private sector do to address some of these big social problems that the Pope is concerned about, hunger, health, climate change, and really came up with some powerful recommendations about what the business community could do. We had a meeting with the Pope the next day. He greeted each of the CEOs one-on-one, -on -one, and it was the beginning of the Fortune CEO Initiative because there was a feeling that business is a powerful platform for change, right. and a bunch of these CEOs wanted to use it that way. And since he was so focused on poverty and since it was such a rich conversation, I know it didn't matter what anybody wore. I don't know if the Pope noticed that Chip was wearing blue jeans. I didn't notice because he is always wearing blue jeans. Doesn't matter where it is. Right, 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 right. And he was wearing them when we interviewed him. He's been on our list of people to book for this podcast since day one, I believe. He's certainly a student of leadership. He thinks deeply about all his stakeholders, and he finds a way, what I really admire, to bring people together to consensus around these broader issues of purpose, even if the issues are controversial. Now, of course, this is a particularly challenging time to be running a retail company. Plenty of clothing retailers have filed for bankruptcy since the pandemic struck. We lost Lord and Taylor and Brooks Brothers, J. Crew, just to name a few. So, Alan, you were there in your typical get-to-the-point fashion. This was the first thing you raised with him. Chip, I got to ask you, I mean, this has been a tough time for your company. We're all sitting at home doing Zoom calls in our pajamas. People are not buying blue jeans. How have you managed? Well, we are certainly living in, a, in very extraordinary times, uh, Alan. But I will set the record straight. People are wearing blue jeans, actually. <laughs> we actually conduct uh, research on a global basis. We've been doing this long before the pandemic. We call it Who, What, Where. And uh, in April, in the month of April, which arguably was probably the most significant month where most people around the world were sheltered in place, 50% of people were wearing blue jeans during that month in the bottoms business of the apparel industry. You know, if you think of what you put on your legs and your butt every single morning, um, about 70% of that is non-athleisure type apparel and denim is half of that. And so denim is still a very, very significant part of the business, but it has been challenging. There's no question about it. When the pandemic hit, we're a big global company. So we saw this um, coming. You know, we were impacted first in China starting in early January. 
And as it became clear that this was going to travel around the world, our business was strong. We had a very strong first quarter. And then all of a sudden, we had most of our doors around the world closed starting in the month of March. I really do see that the pandemic is further separating the winners from the losers. And we're determined to come out of this as a winner. We're well positioned to do that. The brand has never been stronger. We've got a really strong balance sheet. We continue to invest in the brand. And we continue to double down on our values, which has made the company and the brand what it is today. So I'm going to concede the point that denim and blue jeans are the comfort food of pants and that people love to wear them. They love to wear their old familiar jeans that perhaps they weren't allowed to wear in the office. But we really are walking into a whole new world. And I'm, I'm curious about what innovation has looked like for you. What were some of the new ideas that came out of this really challenging time? Well, it's, it's a great question, Ellen. Um, we've been following the consumer very, very closely through this entire thing. And so a couple of trends are probably somewhat obvious. And so our e-commerce business has been really, really strong through this. In the second quarter, which we announced now about two months ago, our e-commerce business was up 25%, but it doesn't really tell the full story uh, because in the month of March, we were actually down. In the final month of the, of the quarter, we were up 70%, and, and we more than doubled our e-commerce business in the U.S. that final month. So there was an acceleration of, of the e-commerce business. You know, we're, we're seeing the consumer want other options besides going into the store or purely buying online. So we put the hurry-up offense in place to come up with capabilities like buy online, pick up curbside. We've got appointment reservations now. If a consumer wants to go into the store, we've got lines at our store now because we have to control the number of people that can go into the store. But the pandemic has and I think will have a lasting impact on consumption and the way consumers buy product. We're going to see much less conspicuous consumption. The consumer is much more about conscious consumption. They're going to buy fewer things, higher quality things products that are going to last and and that are sustainable. So sustainability is another huge driver that we're seeing. Again, it was really, really important to Gen Z consumers, but we're now seeing that becoming much more mainstream. So you put all these dynamics together, conscious consumption, um, consumers being much smarter about quality. And so all of these dynamics kind of play to our strengths as a brand. We sell vintage Levi's in some of our mainline stores. Consumers will pay a premium for a 25-year-old trucker jacket versus a brand new trucker jacket. <laughs> so, you know, and all of this just really speaks to where the zeitgeist is going right now as a result of the pandemic. These are going to be changes that we see for a long, long time. Chip, I'm sorry, I can't help bringing up since you t you're talking about sustainability, your first interaction with Fortune, which was six years ago at a Fortune Green conference, where you uh, infamously said you don't wash your blue jeans. That's right. And I'm actually wearing those <laughs> jeans today. But actually, what I said, just to set the record straight, was these blue jeans have never seen the inside of a washing machine, right. which the headline became you know, the CEO of Levi's never washes. <laughs> <laughs> Fundamentally, it was a shot across the bow to wake consumers up because the consumer behavior here in the U.S. is after you wear a pair of jeans once, it's one and a half times on average in the U.S., you throw it into the washing machine. And jeans consume a ton of water. In fact, 
we did a, a life cycle analysis of a pair of genes and what the carbon imprint of that pair of genes is, 50% of the water consumption happens after the consumer takes the genes home because they wash the genes almost every single time that they wear them. Right, right. And the really cool kids dip their genes into the ocean. That was sort of the, the all the rage when I was in college. Shrink to fit genes, exactly. That's exactly right. Chip, I, I want to ask you, because I, you and I have had many conversations over the years. I know you are one of the most thoughtful leaders about purpose-driven leadership. You think hard about it. You work hard on it. But then you get thrown into something unexpected like this pandemic. I mean, I saw, you've had to lay off hundreds of people because the business just wasn't there to support them. What does it mean to be a purpose-driven leader when you're facing a crisis like this? Yeah, it's. I had a lot of a, a number of real, you know, sleepless nights, thinking, agonizing over this. At the end of the day, we are facing something that no CEO has ever faced before in their life. I'm running my business today without a forecast. We're running it on three scenarios: high, medium, and low. And going into next fiscal year, we're probably going to have the same thing. So. The amount of uncertainty that we're dealing with, because so many things are beyond our control. I, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with the virus. I don't know when a vaccine is going to be available. I don't know if and when the world returns to a pre-pandemic norm. And you know, in the second quarter that we announced now about two months ago, and it, we're about a six billion dollar company pre-pandemic. Our plan for this year was to be slightly north of $6 billion. So an average quarter would be about $1.5 billion in revenue. The second quarter that we announced, we did less than a half a billion dollars. Whoa. Whoa. We lost $1 billion in one quarter off of the top line. Whoa. Now, that hopefully will be the, the bottom for us because uh, our stores were closed 10 of the 13 weeks of that quarter, as were most of our big wholesale partners, you know, the Macy's, the Kohl's. They were also closed for about 10 weeks of that quarter. And in the third quarter, our stores have been open longer, so we should see better results. But, you know, when we had it, we had an organization built to be a $6 billion company. We're going to be south of $5 billion this year. And it's just a question of how far south of five. And if I knew the business was going to pop back immediately, we probably would have carried a, an overweight organization, if you will. But there's so much uncertainty, and we don't know how long the virus is going to last and how long the economic fallout from the virus is going to last and what kind of impact that that's going to have on our business. And, you know, this company has been around for 167 years, in part because we're always focused on doing the right thing. And for the good of the sustainability of the company, my choices were carry a bloated organization and slash and burn everything else which could jeopardize our ability to come out of this moment stronger or make the hard choice to right-size the organization for the size of the company we're going to be. We will be a smaller company coming out of the pandemic. There's no question about it. Right-size the organization so that we have the money to invest in coming out of the pandemic with a much stronger business. And that ultimately was the choice that I had to make. We focus a lot we had to lay off 700 people, which is about 15% of our management headcount. I spent a lot of time worrying about that 15%. And when we, when we had to let those people go, we did it the right way. Everybody got a package and we let people keep their computers and their phones. We also extended their healthcare benefits, recognizing we're laying people off in the middle of the pandemic. 
And uh, we really tried to be guided by our values through the entire thing and execute it with empathy. But I also had to think about the 85% who were going to be left and making sure that we are set up to be successful as we go forward through the pandemic. Because again, we just don't know what's around the next corner. We don't know if there's going to be a huge second wave. So much is outside of our control. So we try to focus on what's within our control, execute it in the right way, and plan for the worst and hope for the best. And that's that's how we've tried to lead through this. And that includes making some really bold and supportive choices, like extending sick leave to even part-time employees, which I thought was really interesting. Could you talk a little bit how you were able to think about caring for the folks that you still have? We've done a lot in this area, Ellen, but we hadn't extended sick care or sick leave to our retail employees here in the U.S. You know, outside of the U.S., there are a lot of government programs in most countries that take care of people. But when the pandemic hit, our first and top priority was our frontline and the people in our stores. And so the healthcare benefits that we made available to all of our hourly employees in our stores was also to recognize the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic and we didn't want our retail employees to have to make a choice to go into work because they have to put food on the table or stay home because they're sick. And we were really just trying to balance that. We announced it during the pandemic, but it's something that we're going to keep for good. It's, it's a benefit that is there for good now. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, CEO of Deloitte US. And Joe, we did a survey together that shows 60% of CEOs see lasting changes in the way customers are behaving. That's a real challenge for companies in thinking about how they engage their customers, isn't it? Alan, there's no doubt the events of the past few months are reshaping the world. Perhaps remote work has garnered most of the headlines, but it's also very clear that the way in which consumers behave their purchasing behaviors, their desire to engage in new ways virtually, much of that will stick. It doesn't go away when we move past the health crisis, which makes it critical that companies are driving a customer-focused technology strategy, investing in engaging customers digitally. And we certainly see that focus across our client base, that even as resources are scarce, investments in digital transformation are being prioritized. Uh, So there's some big changes in store in the coming months. There absolutely are. But again, these are opportunities to drive a much richer method of customer engagement, to leverage data, to apply advanced analytics and cognitive technologies, and ultimately drive higher levels of customer engagement. Fascinating. Thank you, Joe. Thanks, Alan. Chip, you have uh, made a name for yourself also by speaking out on a certain number of public issues, even though they might not directly affect your bottom line. And the one I'd like to talk about a little bit is is on guns and gun control, because there's no question in my mind there are a lot of people out there in blue jeans who are gun owners, gun users, and members of the NRA. And I suspect a lot of those people weren't terribly happy to see you take such a leading role in controlling the use of guns? Well, we have a gun violence epidemic in this country, Alan, as you're well aware. And about 100 Americans die every day as a result of a a gun. 
And we got into this issue several years ago when a gun went off in our store. In one of the open carry states, a consumer came into our store. Literally, you can't make this up. He literally shot himself in the foot in the dressing room. But, you know, that bullet could have wound up in one of my employees. It could have been a, a consumer. It could have been one of our children shopping in the store. Um, we were lucky. And that triggered us getting into this um, because we posted a letter uh, asking, respectfully asking gun owners to leave their gun at home and not carry a weapon into our store. So we kind of waded into this issue really out of the concern for the safety of our employees more than anything. But then when Parkland happened, it just became a tipping point for me, for us as a company. Obviously, this is not something I did on my own. We engaged with our board of directors because there are governance aspects to this because of the potential consumer blowback and everything else. But I see the gun violence epidemic as something that is ripping society apart at the seams. We've got the data on this. It is you know, one of the big issues impacting young consumers today. Most kids grow up now doing lockdown drills at school when they're in school. I've got a almost 12-year-old daughter, and we live in San Francisco. They practice lockdown drills more than they practice earthquake drills in school. And so the young kids in this country grow up every single day. Chip, I, let me just follow up on this, because we're in the middle of this great debate over stakeholder capitalism. And there are people out there who say, Chip Berg, your job is to run Levi Strauss for the shareholders, to make them money, to sell blue jeans. It's not your job to worry about the safety of school kids. That's the duty of local government or national government. What do you say to those people who say this isn't what the CEO of Levi Strauss should be doing? Well, I firmly believe that CEOs have a role to play in making the world a better place. I believe that companies have a role to play in making the world a better place. And you know, one of the reasons I joined Levi Strauss is this company has had for its entire 167 years now, a platform where the CEO is expected to take stands on important issues of the day. And it goes back a century, more than a century, it goes back to our founder. And there's, you know, our consumer is the young consumer. We target today, we target the Gen Z and understanding where their mindset is around what's important in this world. It's climate change. It's gun violence. It's These are the things that really are important to our consumers, and they are important stakeholders to us. These are the things that are important to our employees. We sit in the heart of Silicon Valley, and the reason we are able to attract great talent and retain great talent is because of the values that we have and our fearlessness in taking stands on important issues. We can't stand for everything. That's the other important thing. You have to pick your spots and stand for the things that really matter the most. The majority of gun owners in this country are in favor of stricter laws that prevent guns winding up in the hands of people who should not own them. The majority of gun owners support national background checks. It is common sense, and it has been proven to reduce gun violence. And so we're not arguing repeal the Second Amendment. I was in the U.S. Army. I was a captain in the U.S. Army 
and spent four years and pledged an oath to defend the Constitution. This is about ending the epidemic of violence with guns. And the time to do it is now. Chip, I want to just because we haven't touched on enough controversies during this conversation, <laughs> politics seems like a good place to to make sure we make everybody mad before it's over. <laughs> One of the other things you have really taken a strong stand on is this get out the vote program. Everybody should get out. Everybody should vote. Now, at first blush, you think, geez, that's motherhood, apple pie. Of course, we all believe that. That's what a democracy is about. Everybody should get out and vote. But it turns out a lot of people out there think it's a partisan issue that by pushing get out the vote efforts, you are helping the Democrats who generally benefit from a bigger turnout and hurting Republicans. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is a nonpartisan effort. You know, democracy only works when people go and vote. And voter turnout has been pathetically low in this country for a long, long time. So we initiated this program back in 2018 in partnership with Patagonia and solicited companies to join us to give employees time off to vote on Election Day. We're one of the few democracies in the world where we vote on a work day. And as you know, and as was clear in a number of the primaries, the voting places can be a mess on Election Day with lines out the door and around the block, especially during a presidential election. And so we felt it was really, really important to give employees time off so that they could do their civic duty and go to the polling place and vote. And if they happen to vote ahead of time, they can take that five hours and they can volunteer and work in a polling place. You know, so we launched this back in 2018. We had several hundred companies join us. The midterm elections, as you probably know, had the highest voter turnout since the 1960s. Now, a lot of Gen Z are eligible voters coming into this election. And it is an important election. And I'm not just talking about the presidential component of it or the federal component of it. When you think about social injustice, racial injustice, all the other issues facing this country, a lot of those issues are at the local level. We just announced that there are now 700 companies. Our goal is to get 1,000. But we've got Walmart, the country's largest employer. We've got Walmart. We've got Target. We've got Nike in our industry, the North Face in our industry, uh, JP Morgan, banks, airlines. We've got you know large employers around the country. I want to say six plus million employees that are impacted by the companies thus far. And hopefully we will reach our goal of getting a thousand companies to join us. But this is really just about making democracy work. You don't have a right to complain about it if you didn't vote about it. Right. But I would argue this is an extension of your social justice, diversity, inclusion, and anti-racism work, too, particularly in the last six months. The communities who are barred from voting, who are seeing shenanigans at the polls, and that's a polite word I can use on this polite podcast, are all communities of color who are also hostages to public-facing jobs that are essential and are sick, and their entire communities are being decimated as a result. So I I appreciate that this isn't a partisan issue, but it's terribly sensitive now, and people are sensitive about it for all these important reasons. What do people really need now, and what kind of resources are you prepared to, to dedicate to this? We are actually committing uh, about a million dollars from the Levi Strauss Foundation targeting helping black and brown communities overcome some of the barriers at the polls that they will face. I mean, I think equally important is this notion of voting early, 
by mail. Hopefully we will see good progress there with the post office getting the funding that they need so that doesn't become politicized and used as a, as a rationale for why voting by mail can't work. But we're very focused on, on doing what we can to help those black and brown communities get access to ballots so that they can vote, whether that's at the poll. I mean, you're right, the, the difficulty factor of voting went up exponentially with COVID. A lot of people aren't going to want to stand in line. A lot of people aren't going to want to go to the polls. A lot of people aren't going to want to volunteer to be at the polls. Right. It does increase and puts an emphasis on this notion of vote early, which is another campaign that is going right now, and vote by mail, and making sure that people have access. Amy Allison is the founder of She the People, a nationwide organization of women of color dedicated to, as she puts it, create a politics grounded in love, justice, and belonging. They've been very busy working on the ground within communities this year, but Amy burst onto the broader political scene last year when she brought the first ever nationally televised presidential forum dedicated to the issues facing women of color in the country. I should also mention that She's the People is one of the 23 organizations the Levi Strauss Foundation is giving money to this election season. Amy, welcome to Leadership Next. Thanks for having me. So Amy, why you? Why did Levi's choose you? Well, Levi's has a long track record in investing in social justice organizations focused on marginalized communities. They understand that their role as uh, corporate leaders can be in providing a platform and support to build the next generation of ideas that will mm -hmm. drive this culture, this the, not just politics, but uh, mm -hmm. to elevate people that haven't been heard from. Our goal in 2020 is to educate and turn out a million women of color across the South and Southwest, really nationally. And it is from having deep and meaningful relationships to a network of phenomenal, talented, and effective organizers and leaders and local elected officials, lifting them up and knitting together a common theme and a common point of view and getting everybody to vote. That's Those are the kinds of things that the Levi's Foundation wanted to make sure that, that we had the resources to do effectively uh, and to do now because there's no better time and no better way for us to see the next uh, generation of leadership and right. to work to strengthen democracy than this approach. I know that you have a, a very strong and very mighty network and that you're partnering with people on the ground across the country. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're learning about how big a problem voting access really is? And, and what are you focusing on? When we brought our women in particularly in battleground states because the fate of the White House and, and the Senate really rests in a handful of states that includes Arizona, Texas, Florida, Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Most of those states have had a history of voter suppression, mm -hmm. lines as long as five hours long in heavily black and brown areas. So it's a big problem. The overarching view of, of women on the ground is, look, we are going to have to plan for significant voter suppression. We're going to fight like hell mm -hmm. to overcome it. We need to do our best to make sure that women of color who have traditionally been the highest vote turnout group of voters in the country and need to turn out in big numbers now have historic turnout so that the results of the election can't credibly be challenged. But the fact is everyone is worried and they should be. We should be. 
So you've described a big, broad, scary problem. Where is there reason for hope? And how important is it that corporations and corporate power, money, and heft get behind this effort? I think it's critically important that companies understand that it's in the best interest of companies as well as the country to show leadership where we're not getting any leadership, Mm -hmm. to make sure that citizens understand how to vote and understand really why to vote, that this is bigger than a party. This is really a threat to our our way of life. And Mm -hmm. without high voter turnout and getting most Americans to buy into the notion that we need to invest in a democracy by showing up as citizens, by asserting our power, that everyone has the power of one vote, and we can exercise that, and we must. We have a whole party that seems deeply invested in suppressing a vote of entire swaths of the population. This is not good and will not be good, not just for business, but for for the country. So that's where I think there's a bridge that we're building between uh, the movement and local communities, the corporate world, and really the, the national politics. Love, justice, and belonging. I get it. Good luck, Amy, and uh, thank you for stopping by Leadership Next. Thanks for having me. We're back with Chip Berg. Chip, in June, you published a comprehensive plan about diversity and inclusion and with some really interesting ideas and some big, big commitments. And we can dig into all of that. But I, I wanted to start by acknowledging that you thanked your Black employee resource group um, called Project Onyx in your announcement for sharing their stories and influencing your leadership team. Could you talk a little bit about what those conversations were like and what you learned and how that translated into some policy decisions? It was very impactful. Um, It made me recognize that this is probably one area where I have not been as successful as I would have liked, I guess, or, you know, arguably maybe have failed. It was gut-wrenching hearing some of their stories about what they go through every single day inside my company. We, we have a long track record of standing for equality and inclusion. Um, we desegregated our factories when we had factories in the Southeast 10 years before the Civil Rights Act. So we have a long track record external. Um, over the last five years, we've given $35 million to organizations mostly led by black and brown leaders to focus on racial injustice, social injustice, equality issues. And yet, when we looked internally after the moments that we had, you know, early in the pandemic with the George Floyd killing and the Cooper video in Central Park, which for me was horrendous, it was a, it was a moment of reckoning for us as a company, is the only way I can put it. A moment of reckoning for me as the leader of this company to look at the hard data of where we are on diversity inside my company. And across the US, we're actually in okay shape when you include retail in our distribution centers. Look at the corporate headquarters. And then when you slice the onion and look at it by levels of leadership, our results are horrible. We have 3% black leaders inside the company and management versus, you know, national representation of 
It's unacceptable. And for me, this is all about how do we make this company the greatest company possible? And if people come into work and they don't see a role model, they don't see somebody that they can look up to at levels of leadership, and they feel like they can't bring their very best self to work, we're not getting the best out of everybody. And I wanted this company to be the kind of company where people can bring their true, authentic self to work every single day. Authenticity is a big part of what Levi's is all about. They don't have to fit into a mold. They don't have to conform. They can be themselves and they can look around the company and see others like them. And right now we're not there. We've got to get there. So it was a moment of reckoning. And, you know, we came out with commitments. We published our diversity data. It's out in the public. We committed that we will update that data every single year. And there better be good progress because we're going to hold ourselves accountable to it. Chip, did you have any big uh, bullet point advice for anybody who's going on the journey? Because Lord knows you're not alone. Everybody's going through this reckoning and everyone's sort of figuring out that they need to do more. I would say two things. One, it, it has to start kind of deep inside yourself with the belief that a more diverse organization is going to make the company more successful, that individuals will be more successful and the company, therefore, will be more successful. And that that is part of what drives me. Number two is it is about helping everyone achieve their fullest potential. And, you know, the reality is when you step back and look at it, when I look at the data, just being a fact-based guy, there are structural issues that have prevented us from getting to where we should be. And you have to be willing to go tackle the structural issues. You know, this isn't about trying harder. It's about bashing down structural barriers mm -hmm. that are preventing us from being successful in this area. And it's holding us back as a company from being a successful company. And it sounds like that's what you think will change the culture because you we can't rely on enlightened leaders to always be there to have these tough conversations. You have to make them part of just how you operate. Is that right? That's right. And you have to knock down those structural issues so that it becomes the way you do business. And we will be a better company as a result of it. And that is why it is so important that we make progress here. Promotion, pay, assignment planning, all of these things are structures. They're man-made by us that for some reason, has prohibited black leaders to, to rise to the senior executive levels in, in our company. And so that's why we're going back and we're looking at the structural part of our processes to ensure that we can really get to where we need to get to over time. And I'm very, very committed to it. Chip Berg, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you very much. Great talking with both of you. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes.